Well, good morning. It's great to be back out with y'all. Great to see so many here who are excited to listen to God's Word and excited to praise Him together and just excited to spend time with His people. Such a privilege to be studying with y'all this morning. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. That's where we'll be for the majority of this lesson. The passage that Mr. Don read for us this morning. So to give a little context here, Luke 17, the Bible tells us that Jesus had started on his way for Jerusalem. In what would be his last trip to Jerusalem, the trip that would culminate in his death and resurrection. And in that chapter, chapter 17, Jesus warned his disciples about a coming judgment. Where he warned them to remember Lot's wife, as we talked about a few weeks ago. And that goes directly into Luke 18. And the beginning of Luke 18 seems kind of odd when compared to Luke 17. uh, Because Luke 17 focuses on judgment and the kingdom. And the beginning of Luke 18, kind of seemingly out of nowhere, focuses on two parables about prayer. The second and the most famous of which is the parable about the prayers of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Where the tax collector, this one hated by the Jewish people, he humbles himself before God. But the Pharisee, the one respected as a leader of the people of the Jews, sees himself as some sort of superhuman gift to God. And even though the parable centers on prayer, we know that in a lot of ways it's more about having the right attitude both toward God and toward others. It's about the necessity of humility in Christ's kingdom. Now, I'm not going to belabor that parable because most of us know it quite well and because Mr. Jacob gave a really good lesson about it just about a month ago. But like we said earlier, the parable, the first parable in Luke 18 also focuses on prayer. This parable is found in Luke 18, 1 through 8. It's about a widow and a judge, and the judge is not a very good guy. And I don't think we think about this parable as much, in part because it's kind of a strange parable. It's a parable that gives us a glimpse into the workings of God more behind the scenes than we normally think about. It's about prayer. It's about blessings. But it does all this through the frame of a pitiable, sad, flawed, physical scenario. It's odd. And it's especially odd when it's kind of juxtaposed between this discourse about judgment in Luke 17 and the parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector right after. But I think it's a parable that's worth studying on its own, and we'll see that it's a very powerful lesson in its own right. So for this morning, we're going to focus for a few minutes about the parable of the persistent widow, and we're going to see what we can learn about our attitudes, our prayer lives, and about our God. Do I not know how to make this thing work? There it is. All right. So I think the best way to start this lesson is just to read the story together again. If you would, Luke 18, 1 through 8. 
And he, that is Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, though so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord says, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And I think that the first important thing to note about this parable is right there in verse 1. Because in verse 1, the Bible actually gives us the meaning of this parable. And the Bible doesn't do that very often with parables. And it's even less common for a meaning to be given before the parable is given. So I think this warrants great emphasis that Luke really wants us, the readers, to understand what this parable is about before we even read it. So what is the meaning? If you want to look in verse 1 again... Chapter 18, verse 1, and he told them the parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So this is important. As we already said, this parable focuses on prayer. But the parable is more than just about prayer. It's also so the disciples, which I think we can safely say includes us, will not lose heart. So this parable, in some ways, is going to give us an attitude adjustment of sorts. It's going to encourage us. So keep those things in mind as we continue through this story. The next thing of note to me is the main character, if you want to put it that way, of the story. Let's focus on the widow for a second. Because stories of widows are all over the Bible, Which is kind of incredible when you think that widows were second-class citizens in the ancient world. I mean, think about it for a second. In the ancient world, who were the workers? It was the men. Who were the money makers? It was the men. Who were the ones that were growing and harvesting food? It was the men. Who were the ones that had legal rights and protection? It was the men. So for a lot of widows... When their husband died, their income, their financial independence, their livelihood, their political and legal rights died along with him. If they had no other family, widows were left with no one to take care of them. With no money or resources to their name, they were left to fend for themselves. They often had to resort to begging or all sorts of other unfortunate scenarios. And our widow here is the recipient of one of those unfortunate scenarios. We aren't given much about her backstory, but of course we see that she has some sort of adversary who is oppressing her. And we can see how that could easily happen, right? If you've got no money, 
no family to protect you, you've got no job or resources, then what's to stop someone from taking advantage of you? And obviously that's a pretty big problem. When the very people that have no one to turn to in life are the same ones that are the most likely to be taken advantage of. At best, the world saw these widows as insignificant, second-class citizens. And at worst, and what often seemed to be the reality, the world saw these widows as an opportunity to steal and to abuse and do all sorts of other horrible things. And that's why throughout the Old Testament, widows and also orphans and sojourners were given special treatment under the law of Moses in order to avoid these major threats. I'm going to read a few for you. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24. And we'll read verses 20 through 22. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So... Widows, orphans, and sojourners had the right to food under the law. If you would turn with me just a few chapters over, Deuteronomy 26, verse 12. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. And it goes on. So... The widows and orphans and sojourners were given aid officially through the law of Moses. And then if you want to turn one more chapter over to Deuteronomy 27 verses 18 and 19. This comes in the middle of a series of curses that Moses, the priests, and the people of Israel put on all future Israelite wrongdoers. And it says this. It says, Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, and the people shall say, Amen. And it says, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and the people shall say, Amen. And it's not just the law of Moses either. In the prophets, over and over again, we see Israel and Judah condemned for mistreating widows and orphans and sojourners. We could almost literally read passages all day that say that, but I think Isaiah 1 is the best example for today. Because in Isaiah 1, God through Isaiah details the sins of the people for the first nine verses of the book. And then in verses 10 through 15, God says that because Judah is so wicked and because they have become so unjust, he will reject them and he will reject their worship. So then Judah is meant to ask, well, God, what do you want from us? And this is what God says that he wants from his people. If you want to read uh, Isaiah 1 verses 16 and 17 with me, this is what God wants from his people. 
Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. And plead the, the widow's cause. And we'll also read verses 23 through 26. God says, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. And afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness." So God in the Old Testament emphasized over and over again that widows and these other classes of people shall be protected by Israel. That they should be shown help and given justice. And that any who violate these commandments, any who oppress these widows and other protected classes should be cursed and punished. This is a very important matter to God. So then, what should happen when this widow comes to the judge and she asks for deliverance against her adversary? What should happen when this unfortunate soul asks for justice? By the Old Testament, by what was given to the Jews, it's pretty clear what should happen. That the judge should listen. The judge should come to her aid. The judge should give her this deliverance and this justice. That's clearly the right thing to do. But there's the problem. Though God told Israel what he expected out of them, though he told them how they should treat the widows and the orphans and the sojourners, they rarely actually did what he asked. And that's why so much of the prophets are dedicated to condemning the priests and the judges and the elders and the leaders of Israel for taking advantage of these widows and orphans and sojourners. God condemned the very men that were supposed to remind his people of him. Because they didn't care about justice. They didn't care about the widows and the orphans. They themselves oftentimes took advantage of them. And the judge in this story isn't any different. We're told in Luke 18 verse 2 that the judge neither feared God nor respected man. He's not a good guy by any stretch of the imagination. He's apathetic. He doesn't care about God. He doesn't care about other people. He clearly doesn't care about enacting justice. But who do you think he does care about, probably? I'd say himself, right? He's clearly out for himself in his own benefit. And that's why when this story begins, the judge is the exact wrong kind of reaction. As bad as you can get. He's not receptive to the widow. 
He doesn't care about her or doing the right thing. He's the exact kind of wicked judge that we read about in Isaiah 1. He is unreceptive to the plea of the widow. And it's an awful sad situation for the widow, oppressed with no justice. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Because the widow comes and pleads for justice and the judge says, eh, I'm not really interested. And some time goes by and the judge by this point has probably forgotten about the widow completely. And here she is again, coming back and pleading for justice. And the judge says, sorry lady, still not interested. And she comes back again and he says no and he's getting annoyed now. And who knows how many times that the widow comes back asking for justice and the judge rejects her. The widow comes back, the judge rejects her over and over again. The story says that this goes on for a while. And it just keeps going in this cycle until one day the judge has had enough. If you're still in Luke 18, I'm going to read verses 4 and 5 again. The judge says, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, I guess at least he's honest, Yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So the wicked judge, the judge who cares nothing for justice, was worn down by the persistence of the widow. And he gave her justice just so he didn't have to hear her anymore. Actually, this is kind of a side point. But Jesus makes a joke here. The literal meaning of the phrase that he uses is uh, the judge says, I'm going to give her justice uh, lest the widow give me a black eye, uh, which is just a phrase that the Greeks use to say harass or annoy. It's not really important. I just think it's a really funny image, the idea of this little old lady beating the judge. Um, but all this to say, the meaning is the same. The foolish judge gives this widow justice and deliverance so that he doesn't have to deal with her anymore. So the widow was delivered by the hands of the wicked through her persistent pleas. And that's the parable itself. It's a pretty odd story. If that was all that we had, I'd kind of have to scratch my head and wonder what Jesus is trying to say to us here. But luckily, he does give us a sort of epilogue in uh, verses 6 through 8. He says, and the Lord said, hear what the, right, what the unrighteous judge says. It will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So here Jesus kind of gives us the key to interpreting this whole parable. How is this about prayer? How is this about taking heart? Well, because if you're a Christian... Your pleas don't go to an unrighteous judge. If you're a Christian, your pleas go to God. Our God, the perfect and righteous judge. And we'll come back to that later in this lesson. So that's the story. That's the interpretation. But now let's focus for a second on what we can learn from this story. We can talk about a lot of things. There's a lot of things in this parable, but I'll try to hold myself to three for today. And I think the start of any applications have to come from verse 1. Verse 1 where it says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. 
That's what the Bible says that this parable is about. And so I think the first application has to be that we ought always to pray. And that kind of consistent prayer is really what is exemplified by the widow in this story. Faithful prayer. She didn't just ask for help once. She didn't ask twice and say, you know, that's it. I give up. She asked for deliverance multiple times. The story said for some time she asks for deliverance, asking for help on the same issue over and over again. And that's why she's in the modern day nicknamed the persistent widow, because she continued on in her pleas diligently, no matter the result. And that's what we're called to do. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says it in a way that maybe we are more familiar with. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. God's people, Christians, are supposed to live lives of prayer like what we see the widow live in this story. She was persistent, she was dedicated, and she was rewarded because of that. I think one example that can really help us understand this maybe a little better is the story of Daniel. Daniel has two chapters in his book that focus in part on prayer, and the most famous of which is chapter 6. You know the story of Daniel 6. The satraps of Persia were so jealous of Daniel that they got together to form a plot on, you know, how are we going to get this guy? Because we're really jealous of him. But the problem was that they couldn't get any dirt on Daniel. He's an upstanding, blameless kind of a guy. So what did they do? Daniel 6 verse 5 says that these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we can find it in connection with the law of his God. Which is an incredible testament to Daniel's faith. And so, of course, they hatch a plan. They know that Daniel prays. They know that he prays three times a day. He was known for being a man of faithful, persistent prayer. So they made a law that anyone who prayed to anything that wasn't the king of Persia would be thrown into a lion's den. They got him. And Daniel saw the law, but Daniel continued praying just as he had done before. And Daniel was arrested and he was sentenced to death. And of course, God protected him. But my point is... That this is the kind of prayer that God's people are called to have. The kind of prayer lives that come what may, I'm going to keep praying. That no matter what the world is doing, if my life looks really good and everything's going great, I'm going to pray thanks to God and praise to God. Or if I've lost everything and I don't know what I'm going to do next... I'm going to pray to God to show my reliance and my trust in him. As God's people, we are called to be a people of persistent prayer. And yet for myself, I find that oftentimes I let my prayer life be thrown off for much less than a lion's did. I find that a lot of times any kind of minor inconvenience or any kind of change to my schedule 
and I've forgotten to pray completely. And that's unacceptable. It just is. We are called to be a people of prayer. Ephesians 6, if you want to turn there, Ephesians 6, the famous passage that's about the armor of God. It talks about the tools and protections that God has given to strengthen Christians against the world. And it concludes with this in Ephesians 6, verses 16 through 18. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Christians have to pray. Christians have to pray in order to properly praise God, yes. But also, Christians have to pray in order to be able to be whole. Christians have to pray to be properly equipped for God's work. Christians have to pray to be able to withstand the world. It's absolutely essential for us to have proper prayer lives. As the widow shows us, to be people of prayer. Because that's the only way that we can find justice and deliverance and aid in our judge. And that's the second point, because that's not the only thing that this parable is about. Luke 18.1 says, And he told them a parable to the, effect, uh, to the effect that they ought always to pray, yes. But it also says that the parable was given so that the disciples would not lose heart. And at the beginning of this lesson, I promised that this parable would give us an attitude adjustment of sorts. And I think that this is what it is. The parable was given to us. The whole gospel of Luke was given to us, if you remember chapter 1, verse 4, in order to encourage the reader, in order to inspire the reader to a greater faith, a greater confidence, a greater trust in who our God is. And this parable fits perfectly into that. But how? Because of who our God is. Because our God is the God who cares about justice. Our God is love. Our God cares for people, even the people that the world deems completely insignificant. The people that have no money, the people that have no family, the people that have nothing. And our God cares for you. And our God cares for what you're going through. As we talked about this morning in the song service... God is perfect, God is holy, and when I look at it, I say, why should he care about us? Because we're nothing, we're dust, we're sinners, we've been enemies of God. And yet, he sent his son for humanity. God sent his son into the world to live and to suffer and to die so that we could have eternal life. God cares for you. And that should give us a lot of hope, shouldn't it? We can take heart in that. And I think we know all this. But what's the point? If our God is perfect, which he is. If our God is just, which he is. If our God is love, which he is. And our God has sacrificed so much for us. 
and that should give us hope, then why don't you pray like you believe that? Why don't you find solace in him? Why don't you trust him like he asks you to? Romans 8, I wish that we could read the whole chapter now, but for the sake of time, I'll be summarizing a lot of it. In verses 26 through 30, the scriptures talk about the Spirit interceding for us, taking our prayers and bringing them to God, bringing them to the Creator in a way that is perfect and in accordance with His will. And it's a powerful thought. That the Spirit of God, he hears all of our pleas and he perfects them and he brings us to the Creator on our behalf. And that's the context of which uh, Paul says this in in the later part of the chapter. Right after Paul talks about the process of prayer, Paul says this about our God in verses 31 through 39. Romans 8 verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us... Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. How will he he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor adversaries, nor persecution, nor wicked judges, nor injustice, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so then we have this beautiful picture of the Godhead where we, though we're nothing but dirt, former enemies of God, we have been sanctified through the sacrifice of Jesus. And now we can pray to God and the spirit takes our pleas and he perfects them and he takes them to God who will justify us and who will deliver us and who will show us love. How great is our God that in his love, in his mercy, he engineered this perfect plan so that he can bring himself to us and he can help us and then he can ultimately be with us in the next life. And that's what our prayers are built on. That our God is not a wicked judge who doesn't care about us. Our God is not a God who doesn't care about justice. Our pleas are brought to a judge who loves us and has already promised us in Luke 18, in Romans 8, and throughout the Bible that he will save us, that he will rescue us from our accuser, from our adversary, Satan, and that he will help us and that he will work justice for us 
speedily. So take heart. Be encouraged. Because why wouldn't you want to take advantage of that? Because that's where our courage is. He's where our hope is. He is how we take heart. It is not in ourselves. It is in the fact that our God promises us that he will save us. He will deliver us because he is a loving and righteous and perfect judge. We are blessed beyond belief that we have a judge who will hear our pleas and will save. So take heart because God cares for all of us. He cares about mankind all the way down to the insignificant. The widows and the orphans and the sojourners and the homeless and the immigrants and the sick. Whoever the world has turned their back on and abandoned, God sees them. And God loves them. And God will deliver them. And since we have this God, this perfect and holy deliverer who cares for all people, one last point is that we need to model ourselves after him. Because there's two options in this story. There's two options that this story gives us. We can choose to model ourselves after the foolish judge, the wicked judge who cares nothing about justice, who cares nothing about other people, and therefore cares nothing about God. Or we can model ourselves after God to seek justice, to aid those who have no help, to love God and to love man. And that's the choice that we have to make. We know that God will save those who need it, but what will we do? Because Israel was called to give justice to the oppressed. Israel was called to be like God, and they said, no, we're not interested in that. They ignored the widows. They ignored the orphans and the sojourners and their cry for justice. And so they were cursed. They were punished. It was a big deal to God. And it is a big deal to God. And I think that ties in with verse 8. You may have noticed that I didn't cover the end of verse 8 at all. And let's read Luke 18 verses 6 through 8 again. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. It will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you that he gives justice to them speedily. And now listen to this. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? That confused me the first time that I read it. It kind of seems to be a little bit out of nowhere to me. We're talking about prayer. We're talking about having the right attitude. And this, what's going on here? And if you remember, we mentioned at the beginning that Luke 17 ends with Jesus giving a discourse about the coming judgment. And it centers around the idea of living like judgment is imminent. That's where Jesus says, remember Lot's wife, right? And I think these passages are very much connected And so the lesson for us in this passage in Luke 18 is that a judgment is coming. A judgment where God is going to be the judge. And while he loves you and he is merciful, he is also just. Will you be ready for that judgment? And part of that is praying. That's what the widow does. And she is commended for that. And part of that is taking heart, having faith, as verse 8 says, and trusting God. But part of that is also learning from the wicked judge. Learning to model ourselves instead after God. And to care about our fellow man. To give justice to the oppressed. To act on our faith. 
Don't be the evil judge. Don't be Israel. Don't get cursed and punished because God condemned the very people that were supposed to remind his people of him because they didn't care about justice. Because they didn't care about the widows and orphans. And this is what God calls us to do. Isaiah 1, 16 and 17. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evils of your deed from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. And bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. That is the charge that God gives to his people. And in order for you to receive these blessings of God, to receive this justice and his deliverance and his life, you need to do this. And as we wrap up this lesson, I just want to emphasize that this parable in many ways directly equips us to be servants of God. It reminds us to pray, to let God help you. It reminds us to take heart, to stay diligent, and to seek the peace that God has to offer. That's what the widow teaches us. But it also reminds us to get to work, to show that faith. And that's what the negative example of the judge teaches us. Because there's a judgment coming. Our judge is going to judge the whole world. Are you ready for it? Have you been relying on him in prayer? Have you been living a life of trust to him? Have you been doing his work? Because if not, you need to get started right now. And for some of you, that will mean repenting of your sins and being baptized to start a life as a servant of the judge. But for others, that will mean repenting and getting back to work. Whichever it is, please do it now. If the invitation pertains to you, come forward as we stand and sing.